Welcome back to the Todd Duncan Podcast. A member of the industry syndicate. This is where success happens. Todd's goal is to transform your business and life through deeper connections, higher trust, and proven strategies to help you win and give you your best life ever. Here's your host, Todd Duncan. Hey everybody, it's Todd Duncan. I want to welcome you to another interview with a top performer. This is going to be a unique interview. When I say top performer, uh, we get a we get a chance over the next 40 minutes or so to spend some time with a good buddy of mine, Mike Hardwick. Uh, for 25 years, Mike has led the charge of building a mortgage company from being a, uh, a loan originator himself to to now having a thriving business 25 years later, still gunning hard and, and doing great business. But the most impressive thing about Mike is the book that he has written called Keep Chopping Wood. And I am a big believer that we can learn from people in the market that have had highs and lows, who have had uh, wins and, and losses and have at the end uh, still been able to come through and shine big and, and still do great things. So uh, I'm going to join Mike Hardwick now. We are connected via video link and uh, we're going to spend some time together. So Mike, it's uh, great to have you with us and thank you for joining the interview series and I'm excited about our time together. Thank you, Todd. It's a true honor and a privilege to uh, to do this with you. I'm honored to be the first one of many. Yeah, no, I, you know, I love interviewing and I love interviewing friends and your story is so powerful that um, I think this is uh, I think this is a perfect interview to start things off with the because uh, what I know between the covers of of the the front and the back of Keep Chopping Wood is a treasure trove of information that uh, I know we're going to be able to just scratch the surface on right now. But um, we're going to have some fun together. So you ready? Ready. So question number one: As you think about your entire kind of history professionally. Um, how did you learn to sell? When did you learn to sell? How did you learn to sell? What was it in your life that was kind of that pivot point where you started learning just the art and the science of selling? I'm glad you asked, how did I learn? Because (laughs) I don't think that sales comes naturally to most people. I do believe it's a learned art. And uh, I started at a very early age. Todd, as you know, my father was a pastor uh, he started a church here in Nashville when he was 18 years old, believe it or not. He was there 60 years, and uh, he and my mother grew that church to about 8,000 people. And I remember so well as just a little boy, probably no more than eight or nine years old, uh, on Saturday mornings uh, before the sun came up, literally. My dad would walk into the uh, bedroom there where my brother and I shared a bedroom as a little boys. And he'd tell us, wake up, boys, we got to go. And, you know, we were typical boys, so, oh, Dad, come on, it's still dark outside. And he'd say, I know, boys, but we got to get going. And he would rouse us and get us up and brush our teeth and help us get dressed. And we'd hop in an old station wagon they would have at that time. And you're old enough, I'm sure, to remember, those station wagons were like massive tanks, just really large. And we'd hop in that station wagon, and we would drive downtown Nashville. There was a new business that had just opened up, um, I don't know, maybe a year or two prior. And uh, you may have heard of it. It was called Krispy Kreme Donuts. Uh, we would we would get down there, and uh, Dad already had placed an order. And they would start loading that, that um, uh, station wagon, an Oldsmobile station wagon, up with just dozens and dozens and dozens of these hot 
Krispy Kreme donuts, and I have to tell you, you're sitting in that car, and the smell of those donuts, your mouth just got watery. You wanted them so badly. And, of course, we'd say, Dad, can we have one? And he'd say, when we finish our work, then you get a donut or two or three, and, of course, I'd end up eating a a dozen (laughs) of them. (laughs) But our work was this. He He would then turn around. We would drive back out to our little church. Uh, probably in those days the church was running 75 people. And uh, it wasn't able to pay Dad a salary. He he didn't take any income out of the church. It was too small. We had to do things like sell donuts on Saturday morning to raise enough money probably to pay the light bill. And so we would get out to the church. The sun was up. It would probably be 7.30 by that time. And uh, we would meet uh, probably two or three other men who went to church and their boys and we would divvy out those donuts, and we started going up and down the streets of an area we call Woodbine. My brother Steve would take one side of the road, I would take the other side, and Dad would drive that Oldsmobile kind of slowly down the middle of those little side streets, and we would go knocking on doors, and Dad taught us what to say. We'd knock on the door, they'd answer, and I'd say, Hi, I'm Mike Hardwick, that's my dad out there in the car, and we're selling hot Krispy Kreme donuts this morning. We're trying to raise money to buy an organ or buy a piano or pay that whatever we were doing at that time. We're selling hot Krispy Kreme donuts this morning. They're seventy-five cents a dozen, or you can get two dozen for a dollar. Would you like two? He taught me how to upsell, <laughs> and so uh, he, you know, through those Saturday mornings, we did them countless times, and I could go on and on. I know we don't have enough time. We did that a lot of times with plate lunches, where mom and some of the ladies would create plate lunches, and we'd sell lunches. And so he just taught me how to sell, how to upsell, how to not be, you know, not to have sales resistance. I learned how to meet total strangers, and that's kind of how I learned to sell. I love, 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 love that story. And uh, what a special uh, visual that creates, you know, with Krispy Kreme donuts. And uh, those things are deadly. And I can just imagine selling them hot, you know, and uh, and the upsell was beautiful. It's kind of funny. I learned how to sell as a guy in Little League. And uh, uh, we had a, a goal. Uh, I had a goal to sell more candy than any other team as a single individual. And, and my dad said, he said, uh, you could either go door to door or you could set up a table in the middle of the street at three o'clock in the afternoon when everybody's coming home and they'd have to stop before they could actually get to their driveway. He said, that's probably a better move. And so I took one street, uh, one brother took another street, my youngest brother took a third street and we sold more candy in four hours than any other team did in a season. So funny how we both have our, our, our roots to look at in terms of how we learned how to sell. Yeah. I love that. So listen, go ahead. No, I just said those were good times, and I have to admit, I still like hot Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> you know what? They're they're good, Manner. They are good. They are not good for you, but they are good. <laughs> so you have uh, you've been selling your whole life, and uh, you know earned learned at an early stage what selling was all about, and uh, and I think back to having read uh, Keep Chopping Wood, and I think before we get into anything, I would love to know what inspired you to write that book. Where did that come from? When did that happen? Yeah. Uh, well, I'd already mentioned uh, that my father uh, had a great uh, 60 years of pastoring a church. And uh, he and mom did a great thing. And I, I had talked to him through the years about, Dad, you should write a book. 
you should write a book. You should memorialize a lot of these stories and a lot of your experiences, mainly for our family, for the future generations to uh, know about Poppy and Mama, as we refer to them, and then also for just the church members. And uh, he always said, maybe someday I will, you know, he, one of those things. And I finally realized about, Todd, probably about four or five years ago, uh, that mother had passed away a few years ago, and Dad was in the twilight of his uh, pastoral years. And I finally realized he's probably not going to do it. For whatever reason, he, he was a great pastor. He built a great church. But I don't think you really felt comfortable trying to write. Uh, you're either a writer or you're not. I don't know. That, it would seem that way to me. And so I thought, somebody's got to memorialize this, and so I'm going to take the task on. And um, I put my mind to it, and I started writing this book primarily to memorialize the events and the history of my mother and my father and what they had done. And uh, as I got into it, uh, I began to realize it's not easy. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of time, and it took a lot of research. Uh, but I, I got to going with it, and uh, the longer I wrote and the more I wrote about, I began to realize that uh, this was going to be a, a labor of love, so to speak, but it was really going to be for my family from my children who you know, Megan, Shana, Lawson, and Michael. Uh, now you uh, they have children, so I have grandchildren. Uh, actually, Megan, I don't know if you know this, Todd, but Megan just had her first little baby uh, six weeks ago, little Oliver, we call him Ollie. They Ollie. live over in London across the pond. And we're looking forward to going to visit them this summer. But I started writing that book, and the more I wrote it, I began to realize uh, this book uh, not only will be a great uh, history for my family, for future generations, but it also can be a valuable tool for my employees here at Churchill to better understand our culture. Many companies uh, have great cultures, and of course most of us think we have a great culture. Obviously, I think we do. I think we've got a slightly different culture. And I thought the book will be able, we'll give one to each of our employees It'll be a good way for them to understand our culture better. So mainly I wrote it for my family and for my uh, employees as a memorial, really, to my father and my mother. Mm. It makes all the sense in the world. What a, uh, what a legacy moment for you, you know, to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, as I read through it, and, and it literally is a story, and it is so beautiful, and, and there's a ton of takeaways. As you think back to writing the book and as you think back to kind of what you want people to take out of it. What are two or three things that are maybe tipping points in your career during the story that you tell and Keep Chopping Wood or two or three of the big takeaways you want people to, to feel as they read this? So tell me each one and, and maybe we go deep into each one of those a little bit. Well, one thing that I, I think that we all, hopefully, as we experience more of life, as we work longer years and... Uh, get a little older, as I like to say. I'm 65 now, so uh, my dad used to say to me, and I write about this in the book a little bit, he said, son, as you get into the, 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 thir the last third of your life, he, he tended to break things down into threes. Uh, and so he would talk about the first third of your life, the middle third, the last third. And he would say, as you get into the last third of your life, painting with a broad brush, you're either becoming a better person or you're becoming a bitter person. 
And to a great extent, what determines whether you become better or bitter are a, a countless choices you made, some big, some quite insignificant, but countless choices and decisions that you made in the first two-thirds of your life. And uh, he taught me that every choice, every decision I make has a consequence. And so um, as I look back on my life, I realized uh, there were some things that really directed the, the path of my life down through the years, some of them successes, but some of them failures also. I talk about the failure uh, that I experienced, the financial failure that I experienced right along with my good friend Dave Ramsey uh, back in 1986, 87, 88, uh, when one of the greatest presidents of our time, as far as I'm concerned, Ronald Reagan, signed into law the Tax Reform Act of 1986. That tax act uh, drove Dave into bankruptcy. It pretty well wiped out an entire savings and loan industry nationwide, and it brought me to my financial needs. I didn't go bankrupt, but I don't know how I avoided it, quite frankly. And so I talk about that and the difficulties of that and some of the lessons that I learned from that. And it was, frankly, I think out of the, the, the difficulty of that time and the despair and the fear and the stress and the anxiety, all those negative emotions were just swirling all around me, and somehow uh, we were able to survive it and come all the way back. So we talk about that in the book, just several events like that in my life that have framed, hopefully, who I am today, and hopefully I'm a better man today than I was then. So <clears throat> it's interesting, because I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I believe in, and, and it's, uh, it's interesting how our stories parallel mine, yours, Dave's, and we've all had vision, we've all had dreams, we've all, you know, built companies, and we've all had a near death or two financial uh, disaster. And, you know, I think for anybody viewing this, whether they're a loan originator, a, a manager, somebody who's trying to lead or build a company, there, there is a reality that the, the bigger your dream, generally alongside that comes a bigger risk. And, uh, and, and I think sometimes we can manage risk and, and sometimes we can't. And it's the times that we can't that really test us as human beings where uh, something is happening that we had not planned on happening. And I've had it in my life, you've had it in yours. So, so as you think about um, just that whole failure kind of uh, overlay in the book and, and all the, the starts and stops that you've had and, and now where you find yourself. And what's the story or what's the message to anybody that has a fear of failure? I mean, it's a human emotion. It's a very deep and real emotion. But we all also know that on the other side of failure, you know, there should be hope and there should be faith and there should be uh, a confidence that maybe your better days are ahead of you. How did you reconcile that in your mind as you were going through some of these pretty substantial moments in time where your character and your integrity and your personhood, along with your business and your bank accounts, were challenged in un unlikely ways? Well, uh, when, when I went through that time, up, up until that time, um, I had had phenomenal success. As a young man, I just had experienced some very good breaks, some very good fortunes, which I share a few of those in the book, but um, I had achieved a level of success that uh, was greater than, than I could handle, quite frankly. 
and I, uh, uh, I, I did not handle it well. I became a, a young man that thought I'd done it all. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton wrote a book once, and I love the title of her book. Uh, she says, It Takes a Village. And, uh, of course, we've all seen the photo, the inspirational photo hanging on a lot of walls where there's a fence post and a turtle on top of the fence, and the, the tagline underneath is, he didn't get up there by himself. <laughs> and so in those days when I was younger and had experienced probably more success than I should have at an early age, it went to my head a lot. And, and I, uh, I look back, and I was big-headed and and uh, so, so it took two years of going unemployed and bringing me to my financial knees, helping me realize, man, I went through periods where uh, I had a lot of self-doubt and, frankly, a little bit of self-loathing. I felt like I'd really let my wife and my, my children down, and I felt mm. my parents and my, some of my employees and another company was running at the time, and it was a difficult time. I mean, I can get emotional right now if, if I if I if I let myself. But um, one thing that my father uh, has instilled in me all through my life is this. He he. You know, again, he's a minister, so I relate a lot of these things biblically and spiritually, and I hope that's okay. But Dad used to say, and he he, he said this to me during that time. He he was my father. But he also became genuinely my pastor during that couple of years. And he would say to me, son, God's not looking at how many times you fall down. He's watching to see how many times you get back up. Mm. Taught me to not quit, to not give up, to learn uh, from the lessons of failure and to allow those lessons to help me become a better person, better not bitter, and so I, I, you know, I had a certain level of perseverance and a certain level of, of just dogged determination. And um, through the help of my father, through the help of my family, through the help of so many good friends that didn't quit on me, that kind of locked arms with me, and didn't say a whole lot other than you're going to get through this. Uh, perseverance, maybe more than anything, is what I learned, and. And the good Lord allowed me to come back. And we talked about a couple of uh, good successes, Franklin National Bank and, of course, Churchill Mortgage. But those lessons are learned in the fire at, those, at that time. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned Dave Ramsey, and uh, we have a mutual friendship in him. Yours dates back a long time. Um, what have you learned from Dave as a person, as a guy, as a, a business owner? What have you learned from him and the years that you guys have been really deep and good friends together? You know, Dave and I grew up neighbors. Uh, I'm about seven years older than Dave, so as, as boys growing up, you if I was 17, he was 10. So we didn't have much interaction. He, he likes to laugh and tell the story about... Uh, the day that his daddy uh, got mad at those Hardwick boys because he had just laid new sod on their lawn, and my brother and I, Steve, rode a new pony that my dad had bought us through their yard and messed up their sod, and so his dad calls my dad, and, you know, dad, come on, boys, we got to go fix your mess. So he likes to laugh and tell stories about that, but Dave and I really became friends um, shortly after 
uh, Dave and Sharon, his wife, graduated from the University of Tennessee up in Knoxville. And they moved back to Nashville, and they somehow started going to our church. And uh, in those days, I was teaching a young married couples class, and so Dave and Sharon uh, started coming to the class, and, and we became better acquainted as young adults. And then, of course, both he and I walked through his bankruptcy, my near bankruptcy, uh, had so many times when we would meet for lunch and we would argue over who was going to buy the Crystal Burgers that day because they absolutely couldn't afford anything more. And uh, told a lot of war stories. We, we uh, had a lot of times when we would just sit there for two or three hours, quite frankly, and, and a level of despair and figuring out what are you doing and how, how am I going to get through this. And so one thing I learned from Dave is exactly what I talked about a while ago with my dad. Dave Ramsey is not a quitter. He is a determined person. He's a thinker. He's a hard worker. And when he sets his mind to something, he's going to do it. You're not going to talk him out of it. I remember so well, Todd, uh, this one particular day, uh, we went to lunch at a little Mexican restaurant, and uh, he wanted to share with me a new idea he had about starting a talk radio show dealing with money and finance. And as he shared the idea with me, I remember so well giving him the best advice that I could at that time, and my advice was, Dave, don't do it. That's a dumb idea. It'll never work, which shows you how brilliant I was, how much foresight I had. But he, he wouldn't take no for an answer. I, I remember I, uh, I said, Dave, why would anyone listen to you, uh, buddy? You just came out of bankruptcy. And he had a great response. He said, you know, Mike, I can tell people what not to do. That's brilliant. I could, I could share two or three more arguments that I thought were very reasonable for reasons not to do it. He had an explanation for every one of them. Finally, I realized he's going to do this, and we're buddies, and, and I need to find a way to help him if I can. And I'd already come back because of our bank, and so I was able to become his very first radio sponsor. And, and as they say, the rest is history. 25 years later, we are both overnight successes. <laughs> Well said, well said. Well, I, I love that story. I love the relationship. And I love what, you know, what he has done for the world of, of people that are hurting financially and uh, need to climb their way back. And uh, I think it's interesting that there's a, there's a cool relationship between what he teaches, this whole idea of financial peace, right? And what we can do in the mortgage business to help counsel our borrowers on how to get control of their debt and you know how to manage a mortgage proactively and how to do it with the right advice and the right strategy. And so how is that um, kind of parlayed over into maybe how you lead Churchill and how you equip your LOs to be thinking differently about the mortgage transaction? If, if you've listened today very much, and I'm sure most of the viewers of, of um, where you share this video, uh, I mean, my goodness, Dave Ramsey today has the second largest talk radio show in America. The only one larger is Rush Limbaugh. Dave, every week, has roughly 10 to 12 million people tuning in at one time or another to listen to him. We have had the, the opportunity over 25 years to work with hundreds of thousands of them. So if you listen to Dave, you know that the only allowable debt that, that he teaches is a mortgage, but only then if you put 20% down and do it on a 15-year fixed-rate loan. Well, 
How many people can do that? Right. So that's the that's what to aspire to. And Dave and I have talked long and hard about this. Most of the uh, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of Dave Ramsey listeners who have called us through the years, they could they cannot do that. Right. And so what we do is we give them a path to get them started and get them there. At Church of Mortgage, we, you know, we believe that everybody should be debt-free. And that means that we've redefined the American dream uh, to be the debt-free homeownership. And so we work hard. Dave refers to us as having the heart of a teacher. And we really do spend a lot of time helping people see this is where Dave says you should go. I know you can't get there right now. Let us give you a path and get you there as quickly as we can. And so we've been able to do that and mesh our message with Dave's message. And, you know, again, it's worked for 25 years. We're, we're still going strong. Yeah, that's cool. That's a neat story. So when we were together at our Achieving Leadership Excellent event last year in St. Thomas of the Four Seasons, um, we were talking about culture. And... Um, you know, it was amazing to see you and your team meet after each session and continue to talk through how you can use the material to continue to build culture. Um, you have built a very strong culture. It's been about improvement and growth, and um, it hasn't come accidentally, I don't think. You've been very intentional about the way you create culture. So what is your advice to leaders whether they're a branch manager, a company owner, um, somebody out there that, that wants the kind of proactive um, ownership, kind of mindset, conducive to service. I mean, your culture just exudes everything I think most people would want their business to become known for. How did you get that going? How do you grow it? How do you maintain it? It, it has to be very intentional. Number one, it has to be very intentional. I'll uh, tell you, Todd, that we, and I'm not just saying this because I'm here with you right now. I've said this to so many people uh, through the years. You are one of the best coaches and teachers uh, that I've ever been around. You, you obviously invest an enormous amount of time in a study and research so that when you step up on the stage it tells mastery with a couple of thousand or you're sitting at a table at ALE with a hundred or fewer, whatever the number is each year. You bring enormous value, and we've seen that. And so um, one of the things that we've determined uh, some time ago is that we love to take our, our what we call home loan specialists, our loan originators, to sales mastery. They go there and they get really good content. They get highly motivated. They come back and they're ready to hit the ground running. At ALE, uh, we take some of our top producers there but we also blend in with that our, our ops leaders. Last year, as you know, we brought, I think, seven with us. This year, we're bringing, <laughs> we're bringing about 18. And that's because of the value that you bring. And so um, we, we spend a lot of time investing in our people. And when I say that, it's not just the financial investment. Yeah. It's the time investment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to lunches. It's going to dinners. It's taking them to the... Predators games and the Titans games. It's summer picnics on the lawn in the back. It's all kinds of events. We do this all the time because we want relationships that go much deeper with our people than just the nine to five when you're working on issues. 
it, it's those relationships that are built outside of the office at ALE, at Sales Mastery, at bowling parties, and all the other uh, plethora of things we do. It's relationships that are built in those times that then allow us, when we're in the stress of the moment from nine to five, to really work through things. We talk often about putting people over property. Investing relationally absolutely pays off, and, uh, but it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort. So, <clears throat> um, one word you just mentioned, which I think is, is just paramount to culture, is you mentioned relationships. And I think there's a balancing act as a leader. Uh, you certainly being, you know, at the head of the, the pack at, at, at uh, Churchill and, and yet having a culture where it doesn't feel like that. I mean, you are the leader and you but you have a very relationally centric model with your team. How do you balance um, the, the need for performance with the cultural ingredient of relationship? And how do you not fall prey to the <clears throat> becoming too soft of an organization? How do, how do you manage both the, the people and the profits? I'll admit to you that uh, it's, I've had to learn how to do that over the years. That, that, that you know, when you're in good, solid relationship with people, uh, it's difficult to also hold them accountable at times. And, um, but I've learned through the years that I'm doing no one a favor if I allow them to, to continually perform at a subpar level. A, I'm not doing them any favors. Number two, I'm, I'm not only hurting them, but I'm hurting people who work around them. And so that one becomes 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. And so I've learned the hard way that, that you know, you can be good friends. I can be your. I, I am your best friend when you allow me to speak into your life and say, Todd, right now, I don't see things the way you see them. Let's talk about that. I, I'll give you one instance. You would know this lady, and I wouldn't call her name anyway, but I had a lady that had been working for me probably about 15 years, and she was one of our leaders here. And uh, But I kept getting complaints, and there kept being issues arise, and and after a while, I, I sat down with her one day, and I called her by name, and I, I said, you and I have been friends. We've been working together for 15 years. I know your family. You know my family. I know your children's names. We, I love you as, as an employer. And, of course, I had other people in the room. I don't do these things one-on-one. -on -one, but I said, I deeply care about you. And, but, but here's the problem I've got. I feel like you know that so well that you take advantage of it sometimes. You're taking advantage of my good graces. And so I need you to know, as much as I care for you, what just happened, I'm not going to allow it to happen again. And if it does, it'll break my heart, but I will let you go. I, I cannot allow that to happen for your good and for our employees' good. Well, she came into my office a couple days later and, um, and resigned. And I believe that she resigned thinking that I wouldn't accept it. And I did. And uh, it was difficult. And it took us a while to rebound from the loss, but we ended up becoming stronger and better. We got a better. As a matter of fact, one of her best friends who she brought to work here 12 years ago took that role and is one of our top ops managers today. Anybody at Churchill Morgan would tell you, again, I don't want to call names, but they would tell you, boy, what a difference maker she is. And 
the lady I ended up letting go, we're still friends to this day, and she's done, I, I would hope and like to think it helped her, but come better at her next job. So you got to hold them accountable while building good, strong relationships. Not easy, but it can be done, and I think it must be done. Uh, now that is <clears throat> that is a beautiful story and uh, one that sets the stage for <clears throat> I think everybody to to really understand the power of being honest and being candid and and doing it lovingly and uh, it also begs the question of boundaries and consequence and owning those you know you can't make empty threats and you can't as you say um ex you know talk somebody out of resigning who thinks you won't accept their resignation you have to be bold yeah as a leader you have to be courageous as a leader um and you got to be candid i think and I, I think far too many leaders aren't and to do it with love yeah yeah do it, do it, do it with respect do it All with right. love with respect and kindness but you have to do it so if you were to advise somebody on um, how to start creating a different culture in their firm, um, obviously assuming they don't have a functional one and wanting it to get to functional, what would be a couple of pieces of advice you'd give to people uh, that want to create a culture that's a winning culture, that's a, a culture of positivity and relationship? Well, one thing you, you mentioned a while ago uh, is honesty. You, you know, you've got... You you can't but you can't teach things that you're not yourself. Yeah, uh, I've uh, heard it said uh, recently, and I don't know who who came up with this, but I believe it's absolutely true. Said the more money you make and the more well off you become, it just magnifies who you've been all along. You become more of who you already were. Hmm. I think first and foremost, you've got to look at your own set of core convictions, core values. And, and are you, at your core, an honest person? Are you a person of genuine integrity? Not that you're, not that you're perfect. None of us have, are, I've made way too many mistakes. <laughs> I, if, please don't ask me to start going into my failures. It, it, it would take <laughs> weeks. I'm, I'm, not, I'm being very honest with you. I had so many mistakes that were bad ones. I mean, just embarrassingly bad. But at the end of the day, in my heart, I, I want to think, and I, and I do believe, that, that I put a high value on honesty, on integrity, on being a very consistent person. And so w once you've made those decisions and, that, that, and you live by them every day, when you recognize that every decision I make, Todd, I've talked you can go to any one of my four kids and ask them, and they'll tell you, oh, you know, they'll roll their eyes. You've had kids. You know, <laughs> but I've taught them all, kids, every decision you make has a consequence. Every decision has a consequence. You better slow down and think this thing through because it's going to have a consequence, good or bad. And so uh, j just recognizing who I am, buying into those values, and then living them out every day, in your job, in your workplace, in your home, in your community. So, so I think it's got to start with me. Who am I at my core? And, uh, and then the people I surround myself with and the people I associate with, by far and large, they're going to see that, feel that. They'll either buy it and love it and stay, or they won't like it and they'll leave. Yeah. Yeah, well said. All right, well, this wasn't designed to, to be the last question of our interview, but since you just brought it up, um, I'm going to go with the script and use the word embarrassing mistakes. Some of them have been really, really big mistakes. So our final question was, 
what are some of the big, all capped, big mistakes in business, and either your top lesson learned <clears throat> or your top piece of advice to somebody on how to avoid that mistake. So let's just, let's get maybe two or three out there, big mistakes you made. Gee, thanks. It's okay. Vulnerability, transparency, it's all good. <laughs> you know, I'll go as deep as you want me to, and I trust your judgment on that, but Todd, I've had a massive financial failure, as we've already talked about, and I go deep on that in my book. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, I had a marriage failure, and it was painful, and it was difficult. Uh, it was difficult on me first and foremost, because it was difficult on my children. Uh, my three older children particularly, it was painful, it was difficult. It took years of um, walking through that. And I think, thankfully, I can say now that we've overcome it and we're uh, in great relationship and, and dare I say, God's been good. He's helped me in a lot of ways there. Uh, from a business standpoint, again, I go back to the first 15 20 years of my career when I had, I made a lot of money and I built a lot of net worth on paper. And at the same time, I was carrying a lot of debt. And uh, when the Tax Reform Act of 86 kicked in, uh, as you will recall, property values, commercial property values primarily, ironically, they did a lot of what happened over the last seven or eight years to the residential world. They went down, they fell off the cliff. In some cases, 40 to 50%. So let's say, for example, I bought a property for a million dollars and I financed 800000 had a 20% down payment, and then the value drops 40%. Well, now I've got a property worth 600, but I owe 800. Those were tough times. Yeah. And uh, I ended up going unemployed for two years. Uh, I had $4 million of personal debt. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever been through. The lesson I learned from that is the same lesson that my good friend Dave Ramsey learned. And that, you know, we, all of a sudden, we both went to the other end of the pendulum. We said, we're not going to be operating under the old OPM theory, other people's money, leverage. Right. We tried that, and it worked. But, boy, when it crashed, it really crashed. So we went all the way to the other side, zero debt. And I remember uh, in those tough years trying to work through that, um, we used to have a saying. We'd say, I don't want any cheese. I just want out of the trap. <laughs> and the trap was dead. And I remember praying on my knees soft and saying, Lord, if, you, if you'll somehow find a way to help me get through this, I'll be very slow to ever go back into debt. So the great irony is here I am in the lending business, but we started Churchill 25 years ago. I've never borrowed a penny to operate Churchill operation. We have warehouse lines of credit. So today, Churchill is debt-free. Uh, I can thankfully say I don't know a dime on a house, a car, nothing. And, uh, but, boy, all, the, the great financial picture that my company and me personally are in today is a direct result of the lessons I learned from the very painful times of the late 80s. So... Uh, those are a few things I've learned. Get out of debt and stay out of debt. 
<laughs> well, I think it's uh, it's living within your means and it's not over leveraging and it's uh, it's common sense stuff today that sadly too many people learn the hard way and people on the other side can teach from a point of principle and, and real life experience. And uh, so anybody watching this, you know, whether they're a brand new LO or an emerging leader needs to understand, man, you've got to you got to save more than you spend and you've got to be smart about how you borrow. And uh, the best methodology long term is not to borrow a lot of money and find yourself you know, back in that spot. Uh, you, a while ago, one of us said, be very intentional yeah. with every decision you make. Yeah. Um, final, final uh, <clears throat> maybe still mistake, but as the leader of the company in business, not financial, but in business, as a CEO, what's the top lesson you've learned on how to lead a company? Yeah, I, I would say that the, le the top lesson I've learned in life leading a company, leading my family, uh, any type of leadership, but just be consistency. We, I've got a phrase that I coined here about three years ago, be persistently consistent. I see way too many people, as I was younger, you know, I'm up one day and down the next, uh, you know, I'm all over the board in my decision-making and um, just learning through the years the high value of knowing your core convictions and consistently living by them every day. Uh, we, we've got a saying here, Todd, if I may share it, it says, do the right activities with the right business partners consistently over time, and you will reap the results you're seeking. And I do believe that. The title of my book, what is it? Keep chopping wood. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Well, man, I have loved spending time with you, and uh, you are a dear friend and a great leader and excited that we had this time. If somebody wants to pick up a copy of the book, uh, where do they go? Best way to get a copy? Amazon.com, Amazon.com. Just type in either Mike Hardwick in the search or Keep Chopping Wood. And you can get it and help drive myself. That's awesome. Awesome. It is a wonderful book. I've read it and would endorse it uh, entirely as uh, one of those one of those memoirs on on how to how to get through the tough times, how to celebrate the good times, and how to to live purposefully and intentionally. So, Mike, thank you for your time today. I know it's valuable. You're a dear friend, and uh, you've impacted a lot of lives in this interview. Love you, Todd. It's been a real pleasure, and look forward to seeing you in just a few short weeks. Yeah, we'll see you down in Mexico. Okay, buddy. See you.